My sources are my friends. They are putting you know, their asses out there for you. My friends just are never my sources. They have this weird behaviour towards women. That's the trouble about being a journalist, you lose friends. Sources are the bedrock of most investigative reporting. Whether our source is someone we've known for years or a nameless person at the other end of an encrypted text prompt, the issues are the same. We need them, but it can get messy. The vital revelations they have about problems in our institutions often come in a flawed package. Their motivations are different from ours as reporters. They want protection, and they deserve it. But everything is being tracked. These problems are all the same as they were decades ago, but the tools have drastically changed. Now, the Walkley Foundation brought four of the finest reporters in the world together to talk about the delicate art of cultivating sources. And as you'll hear, they don't always agree. We've got Heidi Blake, investigations editor at BuzzFeed UK. She led a team that broke a match-fixing scandal in elite tennis called the Tennis Racket, and she previously investigated FIFA. We've got Daniela Pinheiro, who covers everything from fashion to politics at a magazine that's sometimes called The New Yorker of Brazil, Piaui Magazine. We've got Jared Ryle, the Australian director of the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists. He led the Panama Papers Project, the biggest leak ever, the biggest journalistic collaboration ever, and an unprecedented glimpse into how the rich, powerful, and criminal store their money offshore. And moderating, we have Quentin Dempster, political editor of The New Daily and a Walkley trustee, who's exposed more than his share of institutional corruption over a 45-year career. What's the worst thing that's happened to you, Daniela? You know that Your mistakes, what yeah. mistakes? I think I need to um, introduce some particularity about Brazil, because everything there, it's, so, it's personal. So our relationship with sources is very complicated because they think they're friends, they think they, uh, you owe them uh, some kind of friendship at the some end. Some loyalty. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and our challenge, it's reinforce and remember them all the time that we are reporters. And, and I think for women in Brazil, it's terrible. It's worse for men. So I, I would love to hear Heidi about this too because there's a lot of sexism and, mach and machismo there. For example, I covered Congress and politics for 23 years. People know me, I'm a well-respected journalist in Brazil, but in, still now it's something that I need to struggle with because there is always a kind of and gender. You, you've lost friends. <laughs> yeah. That's the trouble about being a journalist, you lose friends. Yeah, yeah, but the thing is the sources, they have this weird behavior towards women. And, um, and, and I think this is a, 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 the worst thing and the thing that I need to struggle until, until now, after 40 to 25 years working. Heidi, uh, you've made mistakes. We all make mistakes. Uh, what mistakes can you confess here and uh, what have you learned from those mistakes? Um, in earlier in your career, perhaps. Earlier in my career, I mean, actually, earlier in my career, in terms of losing friends, I think something I did very early on was... Um, I was talking to a, we all just graduated from university and I got my first job at the Daily Telegraph as a kind of cub reporter and um, I went out for drinks with some of my university friends and one of them had just got a job as a civil servant um, at the Ministry of Justice in, in Britain and um, told me that the Ministry of Justice had, um, had a basically had a big accidental data leak and lost a load of, uh, lost a load of documents. Um, and I... Um, kind of figured that he knew he was talking to a journalist and went back to work and basically broke the story. I didn't out him or name him, but I rang up the Ministry of Justice. They confirmed that this had happened because I knew, because I could very confidently say, I understand this has happened. They confirmed it and we broke the story. Um, and he was fine. It didn't cause him any problems, but he was absolutely furious with me because he was like, I told you that as a friend. I did not tell you that as a journalist. And I guess I was a young reporter and I was so kind of like hungry for a story and, and I kind of figured he knew he was talking to a journalist that I, I went out and did that and I for a long time he wasn't really my friend. We aren't, we're friends again. But, um, we reconciled. Man. We reconciled and I kind of just apologised profusely and said look I, I screwed up and I really shouldn't have done that. How do you guard against that? Do you, you have to say hey you're talking to a reporter here? I think basically now um, I just have a really, since then, I mean I can, you know, it, was, it was a really painful experience and I was very young and it was silly and I should have said to him listen, I'd really like to ring up the MOJ and ask them about that. Is that okay with you? But I think 
um, now I have a really, really very clear dividing line between like friends and sources and my friends just are never my sources you know and I'll just say like just don't tell me you know like I'd rather you just didn't tell me because I'm I am a journalist but you know and equally my sources are never my friends I'm friendly with them I care about them you know I will protect them to the ends of the earth but I I'm never going to be their friend I'm going to talk about protection of sources shortly but Jared what about uh, what about you what mistakes uh, did you make early in your career that you learned from well, my biggest mistake at the beginning was thinking that there was something magical about what we were doing and that you, know, that you had to be inspired or one day you'd wake up and suddenly you knew what you were doing. I, you kind of forget that, that this is actually quite simple, what you do, and, and you need to work hard at it, you need to practice, and you need to basically build. I mean, I, I go with, I, actually, my, my sources are my friends. I, I, I think it's very important to have a one-to-one -one relationship with them. But it's also very important to understand them understand what their motives are when they come to you. This is a point that Kate McClymont also made uh, in one of the panels, is that you, once you understand what's motivating them, you can understand then what mistakes you need to avoid making. So if it's a, a spurned wife and she's coming to you with all the, recommend, or all the documents of, of the husband, and you, know, you need to know that in the beginning that this is what's motivating that source. So I like to, I, I think that you have to have a very close relationship with your source, especially your, your really good ones. You need to protect them. You need to be their best friends. And uh, as I said, and sorry, yes, Heidi. I'm, I'm just really interested. I mean, it might be about a definition of friendship, but I feel like I'm not objective about my friends. Like, I, I don't see them clearly. I love them. I think they're wonderful. I don't, I'm not going to kind of scrutinize their faults and their failings, but I feel like with my sources, I mean, I care about them deeply, but it feels like it's much more of a professional relationship and like I know what I need to do to protect them uh, but I also understand what their failings are and can be yeah but I think it's a very deeply personal relationship you're having with them because they're really a lot of these people are putting their lives out for you if they get caught you just need to look at the famous cases of of Manning and Snowden and what happens then you know so I do think that we need to treat our sources with a great deal of respect to begin with because they are putting their you know their asses out there for you I mean our job as journalists is to get information and, you know, and we're the ones that end up you know, winning awards and doing other things with the final story. Often these people never, you know, you don't want them to get found out, so they never get the credit. So, you, you know, I you think it's a personal relationship. When you, when you uh, have a, an informant, and of course, as I said, uh, it's journalism is the relationship with the informant, uh, largely, and the protection of them, there's no such thing as indemnity. Uh, from legal action or law enforcement action against them, is there? So. Do you have risk management sessions with them and say, let's talk this through? Well, uh, yeah, sorry, I don't want to... Yeah, yeah. Daniel. In, in my case, uh, sometimes it, it happens... Um, what's, what's, what's the consequences for you if you're discovered as, as my informant? Because in a small town, even though Brazil's a small town like Sydney and London and uh, Washington, everybody will suspect who your source is. Yeah. And, uh, and actually, uh, usually they are right. Yeah. <laughs> but in my case, I never, um, I never had a big problem uh, of, for example, to be sued or, or to be threatened by, by one, the, the subject or a character that I wrote about. And, uh, but it was a, a, re a clear relationship with, um, with my source, for example. Uh, if I have some problem and I need your help again, and maybe you need to give more information and open more things to me, I think it's something that we need to talk from the beginning, because as you said, it's us in the front row. They're clear yeah, of Yeah, it's something happened. People in Brazil, um, these guys, when they prosecute, sue a journalist, they sue journalists personally, not the, the newsroom. Yeah. So you can lose your house, you can lose your car. I have many friends uh, who happen these things. To Where they have, they have lost their livelihood, lost, lost their, uh, the, their, the house. Uh, yeah. The house. Yeah, that, the that. Guy, the guy, they, one, one of my friends, they, he wrote about a banker uh, saying that he was criminal and laundry money. Uh, and the guy uh, sued him. Yeah. And, and, the, and the fee was like a million dollars yeah. for a journalist. Yeah. <laughs> in, some in some countries, of course, yeah. uh, they're killed, <laughs> they're murdered. Uh, in, in other countries, they're, they're uh, personally targeted for defamation, legal action, and, uh, and shut out and uh, closed down that way. Heidi, uh, what about you on protection of... Uh, 
Yeah, that's something I always try and lay out really clearly at the very beginning of the relationship is that I will say to them, listen, you know, protection of my confidential sources is kind of the most important thing to me as a journalist um, because without protecting your sources, you're nowhere and you're not ever going to get anyone. No one will ever trust you enough to give you any documents and or to, to tell you about anything. So you have to do that. It has to be first principles. Um, but I, and I will say, listen, I, you know, I would, I would go to prison to protect your identity. I will do anything that I can possibly do. But, you know, you do have to know that there are risks and... Um, and I will want to make sure that they understand that. But I guess for me, this is partly, this is kind of at the heart of why friends and sources are different. And maybe it's just, it might be about a definition of friendship, but it's a real risk that people take when they give you information. Um, and I, I've never had a source burned, um, thankfully. I've, you know, they've always remained anonymous and protected, um, touch wood and fingers crossed. Um, but they are taking a risk and it's, it's like, I, it's not a risk I'd be able to take with somebody that I considered, you know, that was a friend, that was like a friend of mine because it's too dangerous. And, but with a source, it's a professional relationship. You explain, you know, they understand hopefully what the, what the deal is about and you, you, you have to keep your commitment to protect them in every way possible. Um, but ultimately you have to trust that they're a grown up and they've made a decision and they know what they're doing. Um, um, you've all got legal teams before publication. So you've got defences available to you on publication. Uh, Jared, tell us about uh, that, uh, it, particularly in relation to Mossack Fonseca and the, the data drop. Well, in America, it's a little different to here. I mean, having worked here for a long time, I can tell you that the legal systems are very different. I prefer to work in America because you have First Amendment protection there. And so essentially, if you can get your story right and if you give people uh, write a reply, you're fairly safe. The downside of America, of course, is if they do sue, you're going to go down for a lot of money. But the, the idea being you try to avoid that. What they tend to do in America is threaten before publication rather than after publication. So you'll often get called into very high-powered meetings with very high-powered lawyers who will essentially um, broker um, the, least, the, the, the best possible outcome for their client before publication because they know that afterwards there's not much point in... in um, but so do you get into a factual dispute, a factual discussion about what, what you are going to expose? Well, again, you've got to outlay, you've got to tell them in advance what you... Show your advise. hand. Yeah, you've got to show your hand in America and that gives you enormous amounts of protection afterwards. I really think that that's great and I think that the British legal system has moved towards that as well because of Can't this thing. Can't the bastards yeah. give it to somebody else or, or some other, some <laughs> rival? I mean, we're in a... There's a rivalrous, uh, I'm sorry, I'm an old-style journalist. But you have to, that's the kind of risk you've got to run, I'm afraid. You know, you need to show your hand if you want to have protection at the end. Sure, there's, you know, you've got, you know, three or four weeks to sweat while they can go out there and spin the story. But that's, that's the system. It's worse here, though. I mean, here we used to wait to the last minute because you didn't want them to find out. And then you would go to them. But then you... You didn't sleep that night. You know, you really didn't because you were almost inevitably. And going you to be learn sleep. a lot through that exchange yeah. too yeah. about your factual, the factual, and the perspective and that you've been making on the facts that you've gathered. Yeah, I think I do think though it's a safer and a fairer system to go in advance and lay everything out in front of the person. Particularly you're if you, the, the other point is, that we're, we're although it's, we're, we're basking in the glory of investigative journalism at the moment, uh, but uh, there's the damage to reputation. Well, there's also fairness. I think it goes down to, you know, we think like journalists. So we come from a certain perspective that we, you know, it's about the public interest or we see the world through a certain lens. You sometimes forget after working in this industry for a long time that other people see that world through a different lens. And you need to learn to at least acknowledge or understand where they're coming from. And I, I think, and this is probably something that comes with maturity when you're working for a long time. You begin to, I think, anyway, you learn to be more fair. You're less fair as a young journalist because all you care about is getting the story. You're more ruthless. It's, it's harder to climb up the ladder when you're young. You're, you're more careerist when you're younger yeah, yeah. <laughs> and more mature when you're older. Of course, that's the way of it. Uh, um, can you be burnt uh, by a, an informant? And how... You say you have to be very close to them beforehand to get to know their motivation, but some people with malign motivations can still drop you some very good information. Yeah, um, I've been done over by yeah, that bastard, but so I'm going to uh, get square. Yeah, Jared mentioned wives. For me, lovers, wives, yeah, ex-girlfriends, <laughs> I love them and I cultivate them a lot. <laughs> well, part of the therapy, yeah. by the sound of it. And, uh, and it happened like many times with me, 
with politicians in Brazil, they have a lot of lovers, so it's perfect. <laughs> and uh, they don't want to pay alimony, so it's, uh, it's always... Uh, because, but of course, we looked into the material with uh, 10 times more attention, but most of the time, it's they are reliable things yeah. because they have a lot of access and uh, yeah, it's for me it's a, a very interesting. Heidi, tell us about your uh, experience with uh, with the lawyers. You've got your in-house lawyers with BuzzFeed. Yeah, um, we do, and they are absolutely kind of critical part of our team in a sense. We we, we have actually just we've got some fantastic in-house lawyers in the states, and we've just hired a, an in-house lawyer, which is wonderful. Thank God for the UK office. Um, Finding ways to publish rather than to, to prevent. Yeah, publishing. absolutely, absolutely. And I've always had an incredibly close relationship with um, the lawyers. You know, it was the same at the Sunday Times, and we were very lucky there to have lawyers who were prepared to go to court and fight all the way through um, and up to the Court of Appeal and beyond if they needed to. Um, I've been through two very big libel trials um, in the UK, uh, which is actually fairly unusual because mostly these things don't get to court anymore because people settle, but because the Times fights, we fought these two cases all the way through and, and we ultimately won. One of them, we had to go up to the Court of Appeal twice, but we did ultimately. You've been in the witness box being under examination by, uh, by the complainant's uh, lawyers? Yes, yeah, in both cases. Tell us about that. How did you go? You know, it was... I think one of the most, both times, but particularly the first time round, just one of the most incredible learning experiences I've ever had as a journalist going through a three-year libel case where every cough and spit of what we've done in the whole investigation... And they had full discovery of all your material? Full discovery. They had our notebooks. They had. I mean, obviously, we, we were able to redact anything which would have revealed sources, but other than that, they had every note we'd made, every every tiny change we'd made to the draft of the story, you know, every... Every iteration of the... Of the every iteration of the story, all of our communications between each other, our editors, our everything. And it, everything was open. There were 10 lever arch files full of disclosure that we'd had to give. Um, and... I sat there in the witness box for three days going over everything, explaining every change to every comma. We, you know, we were cross-examined over the most ridiculously tiny things like um, whether we'd capitalised the name of a particular donor group to the Conservative Party and what that said about how we were trying to portray it. And I was cross-examined over um, the fact that the one factual mistake in the story, it was a story about how the um, we'd, it was an undercover investigation and we'd caught the treasurer of the Conservative Party in Great Britain um, offering to sell meetings with the Prime Minister and access to, uh, or the ability to influence policy and access to insider information for £250,000 a time. Um, and he'd had to resign, it caused a huge scandal, it was a big story at the time, and then he sued us, and um, so we were, and he sued us for malice, for malicious falsehood. So we had to prove that he was trying to say, you set out to bring me down, which actually it was obviously entirely untrue. Um, we didn't even actually know his name when we began this particular investigation, but um, we were cross-examined over every tiny thing, and we were, the one factual error in the story was that I'd said that when we got to his office, he offered us a cup of tea, and it had actually been a cup of coffee. Um, and I was cross-examined over that, and you know, it was put to me, if that's well, your attitude to the facts, Miss Blake, how can we trust a single word you wrote? Well, you're in front of a, <laughs> you're in front of a judge, I suppose, and the, the judge is making judgments about the credibility. And this is the, this is British justice. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah no. What about you, Jared? Have you been grilled in the witness box? Um, I've been grilled outside witness boxes, so I've had to give evidence um, in close camera a few times. In fact, recently I was cross-examined in, in the US over a story we did actually with The Guardian about three years ago, and it was um, a plaintiff lawyer from Canada who was cross-examining me. Uh, you learn a lot from this, by the way, because we as journalists and we as human beings basically are quite emotional about some of these things, and we want to give the full story, so we overemphasize the facts. When you go to lawyers, they, what they tell you to do is actually strip all that out mm -hmm. and take out all of the, and, and that's a, a completely different way of thinking. And it takes a long time to get used to it because you think, oh no, I'm just gonna add this extra detail um, because I think it's relevant because we're, as journalists, we love detail. Lawyers, they don't want detail at all. They want it to be the absolute minimum, answer the question, you know, yes is a great answer, no is a great answer. Whereas we want to say, yes, but I, you know, I, I thought it was a cup of coffee or I thought it was a cup of tea because of the way it smelled. You know what I mean? You want to add a bit of detail, they take it out. Mm. So, yeah. yeah. I was also cross-examined here once where, um, when I was working at the Age newspaper, basically we were investigating the police in Victoria for a long time. And, um, and that was quite a, I have to say, 
you think of journalism as, you know, as, as heroes when you, you know, you've been threatened with jail, which is what was happening. When it actually happens, I can tell you, it's, you're not so brave. You know, um, when you're told basically get yourself a toothbrush because you're going right to jail today, you kind of it does make you stop and, and think. And you know, there are real consequences to these things. People do end up going to jail. People do end up getting hurt. You know. Uh, let's just go back to motivation of uh, informants because uh, I think there's been some criticism of your your Mossack Fonseca drop. Uh, I'm sorry, I haven't done sufficient research to prepare myself for this question, but uh, it was along the lines that uh, you may have been set up or the motivation of your, of your informant? No, I don't think there's been any dispute over the factual, uh, the, the facts that were leaked to us. I think the criticism we got was, how can you, as journalists, accept stolen documents? Which is an issue you're going to come across through your entire career as a journalist, because you know, pretty much if someone's giving you information, it's, it's not on the web. Exactly, it's not, yeah. And so it's likely that it's been stolen or that someone has taken it illegally from the firm. I mean, my attitude to that is always, well, let's just examine what's in the public interest here and basically prove public interest and that gets you around that issue. I mean, I was um, invited to a panel in Miami recently and I turned up and basically the other person that they'd invited was one of the owners of this firm. Uh, Ramon Fonseca, and he basically said, you know, that he didn't want to turn up because he didn't want to be on the same stage as a criminal. <laughs> and, you know, but you can see from his point of view, I was a criminal who was basically breaching private information. Um, I saw myself as a journalist who was acting in the public interest. Mm. Reputation uh, has been raised. We've had a big fight in New South Wales about the future of the Independent Commission Against Corruption, which has used its coercive powers, its phone tap, surveillance, seizure of documents, all the things that we can't do uh, and we rely on our informants. And there's this view about uh, uh, the, the, you, we are, the institution, even though it's set up by the state, has uh, this, uh, through public hearings, trounce the reputation. How do we deal with the question of reputation? Reputation of... Um, of, uh, of the targets, of the targets of your journalism, because there's some... Uh, we, we, we might get awards uh, uh, for the Walkleys or glowing um, uh, recognition for what we do, but there's, um, there's a shattered uh, life at the end of it, um, and for all the, the public interest reasons, but uh, how do we deal with uh, uh, shattered reputation? Look, when I write about this, these guys um, in an investigative, serious investigative things, they normally, they did bad things. So <laughs> I'm not, I'm not feel um, like guilty or I don't feel, um, I don't think about their families, I don't think about their children or because I think they decided to, to to do the things they They've did. abused their power. Yeah. They abuse the power, they, you know, they, they have this, this sense of impunity, and, uh, and in Brazil it's so common, so I'm very glad when, when I, I, I can't, you know, expose some, I, I did have a piece on, uh, on FIFA, the guy who was the chief of Brazilian soccer for 20 years, and he never talked to, to the press because he's like a mafia guy. And then I asked him for uh, an interview and when he saw me, oh, blonde, blah, 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 he, you know, he, he, he asked me if I knew the coach of the Brazilian team and I didn't even know the name of the guy and he was so comfortable with, with this. So he told me everything. We went to Switzerland together to the FIFA's election, the first Blatter re-election. And it was a, a terrible, because my piece was not about soccer. It was it's about corruption. It's about yeah. uh, how these people deal with, uh, with power and, uh, and, the, and how they are organized as a mafia. And the guy resigned five months later. Ricardo Teixeira was one of the potential uh, successors of Plata. Massive. Yeah, work. yeah. And, uh, but I think it's, I'm so glad that's happened. Sometimes, do you find that the kind of inherent sexism that you encounter in sources sometimes really works in your favor because they assume sure. that you're in my, in this case. <laughs> yeah, I get that all the time. People assume you're kind of just some yeah. kind of bimbo and they yeah. just think you're not a threat and they'll tell you anything you want to know. Well, that's a great tactic, think, great tactic. And I think <laughs> it's, just, uh, yeah, it's specifically with the sports, it's, it, it works because yeah. in Brazil, for instance, uh, journalists who cover sports are fans, so it's a problem. 
Yeah, and, um, a huge problem. Yeah. Objective. And, uh, Before yeah. we throw open, I want to get to impact. Uh, you've had impact, uh, Heidi, and you, Daniela, and we'll get to Jared too, but um, what, having sat through your previous session, I thought because the uh, sport is now associated with gambling, with internet gambling on bloody everything, uh, is there any, has there been any debate about uh, getting sport away from gambling? I'm sorry to be Presbyterian about this, but is there any way uh, that you could, you could stop these wonderful athletes from being compromised? I mean, I think I suppose there's almost a kind of moral judgment call, really, about how you feel about gambling and whether, there's a, whether, it's, kind of, whether it's morally acceptable or not. And so in America, they're really quite puritanical about it. In the UK, gambling is fairly entrenched. Uh, I've, I've been a, a the covering... Queen is like a big gambler. She know. is. Uh, I've been uh, covering police corruption all my life, and the amount of money awash through the drug trade had seen the coppers be easily compromised mm -hmm. through <laughs> sometimes a few hundred bucks, uh, sometimes thousands, sometimes much more. And, and of course, higher up the drug train, uh, dr uh, the drug distribution chain, it's millions. Mm -hmm. So the question is the the corrupting influence of all that money that's awash. I mean, money is always at the heart of any corruption story um, at the end of the day. But I think I actually feel that. Um, Whatever you think about the gambling industry, to be fair, they have, you know, they have no, they, what they really want to do is to keep it clean. They don't want corrupt bets being placed and they are doing everything they can to try to bring, you know, bring these fixes to the attention these of the intermediaries yeah. to get them to take action. And they are constantly sending in reports to the Tennis Integrity Unit saying we're suspicious about this player. These accounts are placing suspicious bets on these matches. What are you going to do about it? And it's the tennis authorities who are responsible for governing the game who really ought to be investigating and, and chucking out corrupt players. Sometimes the regulators are captured too by, the, by, by corrupt influencers. Well, again, I actually think the big problem for, the, for sport in terms of its total inability to govern itself effectively or to investigate itself is that, that sport is, they're obviously trying to promote the commercial image of the game. There's a huge amount of sponsorship and marketing money that comes out of that. And so the last thing they want is for evidence of corruption to come to the surface because that's going to be very off-putting to sponsors. And so again, the reason why the cover-up happens is they're trying to, to protect their commercial image for a profit reason and uh, and so it's much better for them to keep a lid on on this stuff and the cover-up the cover-up is another challenge for investigative journalism uh, Jared um, uh, Mossack Fonseca and the data drop was huge around the world uh, but the question is uh, and there's started to be a debate about uh, with the G20 about uh, offshore uh, offshore havens and uh, various distribution mechanisms and transfer pricing, all the things that are done by major corporates to avoid paying bloody tax. Uh, when will you call that investigation a success? Because we're still a long way from any reform to get uh, to, to destroy tax avoidance internationally. Well, I think the first thing you have to do, though, is get public, the public angry about this. And I do think that we're winning that battle. We have you know, now had, I think, this is a third OECD inquiry into how we're going to be able to stop the secrecy of the offshore world, which allows, uh, I mean, it does. I mean, big companies, bottom line, they don't pay tax. You know, and if they pay tax, they think they're fools, um, and including a lot of media companies, by the way. I mean, there's a reason why a lot of media companies are, are incorporated overseas, including, you know, even the most famous one, The Guardian, you know, is, is, has actually got offshore entities. You know, uh, Rupert Murdoch's empire, obviously. Um, I'm not sure about Fairfax because I haven't looked, but I imagine there's some sort of offshore entity somewhere as well there. I uh, hope I'm not defaming them. But, but yeah, I mean, I do think, though, initially you've got to get people, and I think this is what every story, you've got to, to show that there's wrongdoing. You've got to get people angry, and then they are the ones that need then to demand action from governments. That's not our job as journalists. Our job is to do the first part, which is to expose the wrongdoing, get the anger, or get the reaction, and then you have to step back, because if you go any further, you then become an advocate. But then it's a, it's a job for political reporters too, I think, to follow it through, following this investigation, the regulatory failure, the cover-ups, uh, then what happens? Uh, because the politicians all over the world, doesn't matter whether you're in a democracy or a totalitarian state, they won't do anything no. until they see the, that the media is consistent on the case. 
And I think that's a, another big lesson when you're an investigative reporter. You cannot drop the story. You've got to keep going. I mean, obviously, within reason, if after five years you're still going down the same rabbit hole, you need to stop going down that rabbit hole. But in order to get real change, it's not the first story or the second story. It's often the third and the fourth that actually get the change. So you're, really, so you you're really in psychological warfare with very powerful forces, aren't you? Well, I think, but that's our job as, you know, as journalists. And as long as there's wrongdoing, there's always going to be another story. And you're always going to be able to be, you know, to get excited again. But, you know, uh, often I always think that every story you do has got to be bigger than the last one to keep, get, get you excited again, you know. But you cannot, you know, you cannot lose sight that themes are very important. And you've got to, you know, to really get changed through, you've got to stick with the story. Um, uh, just another question for you. How excited were you when you had access to all this information on the Panama Papers? Well, you're always excited when you get a good story because, you know, you know that for the next year, or for, in my case, when I'm very lucky that I, have a, I, I don't have time frames that a lot of people are under here with a lot of time pressures. When I was at Fairfax, you know, getting three months for a story was considered a lifetime, you know, whereas now it's a year for me. And you, you live through it, you love it. You love when you're on a good story. But then you go through that horrible period afterwards when you don't have that story, getting the next one. And that's, it really is like Limbo. an emotional roller coaster. Yeah. Well, the, the question, the, the issue is we must never get tired as journalists and handing on to uh, younger journalists coming up that we just must never get tired because the same forces are at work. We've got uh, 20 minutes for some questions. We've got some mics available. Uh, let, me start, uh, let me start over here at the, on the left, yes. Um, this is for uh, Heidi and Daniela. There was a point where you were talking about that um, inherent sexism actually can work in your favour, and I just wanted to see if you can elaborate on that and if it actually doesn't work in your favour and sometimes. Yeah, I mean, it definitely... Clearly, sexism is not a great thing, and uh, clearly it works against you as well a lot of the time. But I just think... I always find it very funny, you know, when, exactly as Daniela describes, you're talking to, you know... Um, to a male source in some sort of authority position and they are just clearly taking it for granted that you're not very much of a threat and that you're, you know, and they're kind of being very patronising and, and it's just kind of like I'm very happy for them to patronise me as much as they like because I know kind of what I'm capable of doing um, at the end of that encounter with any information that they, they divulge to me. Um, and uh, so it just, I mean, I just sometimes think that being seen as non-threatening um, particularly in a kind of confrontational situation, can sometimes actually get you a lot further than being aggressive or confrontational back. Um, I mean, I'm, I don't know, do you have specific examples of that sort of thing happening, apart from your Tashira example? Yeah, I think, uh, I think this soccer thing was the, the best example I have, but uh, the, 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 the downside of this thing is that, that uh, as I told you before, you need to reinforce uh, and prove yourself uh, and maybe sometimes acting like a bitch all the time, like, like rude, uh, not rude because otherwise the guy will get upset to you, but um, I need to pay attention to my clothes. I need to pay attention in my uh, voice tone. I need to, to be aware of the, you know, about uh, how I will address, uh, because since in Brazil everything is personal, it's not uncommon. You greeting a congressman, kissing him, in a, you know, because it's normal, it's a Latin American thing. But I stopped to do this from the beginning when I was 23 years old. The, the, the first time I did this, the guy touched my hair, so I learned the lesson earlier. But um, this, um, you can't accept uh, the first joke, gender joke, you can't accept, oh, you're so beautiful today, this, because in Brazil, I don't know, in America, it doesn't happen. And in the UK, I don't think so. But in Brazil, it's common, common. And a lot of journalists, we have a, a very bad press, women journalists. Go to House of Cards, what the journalists did. Had an affair with Frank Underwood to get information, so. And in Brazil, two presidents, have kids with journalists. Oh, really? Yeah. God. So it's so it's not an uncommon thing to happen. That's uh, we not can't. What I was yeah. To. No. <laughs> we can't blame uh, you know the myth because it's not a myth. It's it's true. Uh, but you need to be you know so aware of this all the time. I'm um, I'm I'm sure they think that I'm kind of rude, but they respect me because uh, I'm serious and I. 
and I, I think it, it, it works. Yeah. Sorry, Carol. Okay, over here. Oh, I've got a mic here. All right, who's got the mic? Up here. Okay, off you go. Who's got the mic? Hi there. Um, uh, a question for maybe Heidi uh, and Jared. Um, you guys have been working with, uh, on the tennis racket, uh, large volumes of information. Um, some of it's circumstantial. Uh, um, you're making assumptions around uh, that information. Uh, Jared, a lot of the information through the Panama Papers didn't necessarily show illegal activity. It might have been um, uh, unethical. Uh, and we've seen uh, with the Nauru files recently uh, a large volume of documents that, um, that may not necessarily have all been indicative of malpractice. How do you go from these large um, caches of information to tease out uh, stories that will really make a big impact? Yeah, so um, with the information that we had about uh, match fixing in tennis, um, we had we did have a lot of information, and we could we had a, a, we could see that basically the World Tennis Authorities were being warned again and again and again about the same players in lots and lots of different ways. But we kind of took a view, having looked at it all, that actually, and this goes to what you were saying about reputation, that. We, couldn't, we didn't feel that we could prove against any one of those individual players who came up in the files that they definitely fixed any matches. We could prove that there were really strong grounds to suspect that they had. Um, but you didn't we, have access to their bank accounts, I think. We didn't have access to their bank accounts or their phone records or anything like that. You know, it's not like the work I'd done before on FIFA where we, had, we actually had bank transfer slips straight into the bank accounts of the FIFA officials coupled with emails saying, you know, thanks for your support for our World Cup bid. Here's 100 grand. Like, I mean, it was just, that was just as clear as day. But this, you know, was, was more nuanced than that. But what we, could, what we could say for certain was that the World Tennis Authorities had the power to go after those people and look at the bank accounts and look at the text messages and their internet logs. And they hadn't done it. So for me, the story was very much about the failure of the governing bodies to do anything to address what clearly was a widespread problem. Because although in no one individual case could we definitely prove it, there was no way that none of those players were fixing matches. Like clearly, there was a widespread problem. Um, and so for me, I, you know, we didn't want to burn the reputation of any individual player. What we wanted to do was challenge the, the governing bodies and say, look, why aren't you taking any action? I, I think you make a great point about it's a great exercise at the beginning of every investigation. Uh, say you do get a hold of documents. To ask yourself in one sentence, what is the story here? You make the point that a lot of what we were looking at with Marsac Fonseca was perfectly legal. Well, for me, that was the story. The fact that all of this was allowed to happen. The fact that major corporations are able to pay no tax while you have to pay 30 or 40% tax for, and it's legal, for me, is, a, is the story. And that's where, you know, and I would apply this to every single story you ever do. Ask yourself, you know, and Gary Hughes from The Age taught me this years ago, what's the story here? You know, you need to answer that before you start your investigation. And often the story is the one that's right in front of your nose, which is, you know, you don't have to prove wrongdoing as a journalist, remember. You've got to basically prove something that's of public interest. And I think that this is of public interest. The fact that all of these people could go out there and play by different rules to you and I is a good story. What we're exposing is abuse of power. Well, it's, yeah, exactly. It's, it's basically there's, you know, one law for these people and one law for you. That, to me, immediately says public interest because the vast majority of people are going to be interested in that. Even though you've got uh, uh, 14 law firms uh, all with international tax expertise and uh, their accountants and all the backup that they get for that. Well, I mean, all of the clients of Mossack Fonseca were not necessarily the, the, the Russian mafia people we were finding or the Brazilian FIFA officials that were doing wrong things. They were big accountancy firms, big law firms doing things that were perfectly legal. But again, I go back to that point, that is the story. And that's what we asked ourselves at the beginning and that was the, the answer we give back. Right, yes, yeah. Sorry, here it comes. That's <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Um, I'm interested in what the panel thinks uh, journalists' ongoing ethical obligations to sources after the story after you've gone, done the story, had the glory, and what happens to the sources. Uh, I did two investigations for Insight at the Sunday Times, different era than Heidi, oh, and in both uh, cases, the sources had their lives uh, ruined as a result of participating. What ongoing moral obligations do you think journalists have to their sources in the year after the story and the decade after that? I, 
I think once a source, always a source, personally. So I feel like um, my sources are always my sources. You know, even if they, I haven't, they haven't, you know, nothing has happened for like years, I will still, I'll always be on the end of the phone. I'll always be prepared to see them, I'll, particularly if they're worried um, or concerned about, about any impact um, that participating in my investigation might have had. I mean, very, very luckily, I haven't ever had a source have their life destroyed, um, thank God. Um, and I've always worked very, very hard to protect them in every possible way um, from um, from kind of any any negative ramifications. But yeah, I think you've got to you've got to always be there for them afterwards. Um, because Sorry, tell me, sometimes it can be therapeutic for sources ultimately to be revealed, so that the public can come in and recognise their courage. I've found that. Yeah. Uh, uh, in negotiating with them, say, listen, if we, uh, you might, there's this whistleblower element, but uh, sometimes whistleblowers never, never get beyond the emotional trauma mm -hmm. of their experience. And sometimes it also can be therapeutic to get them the recognition and they can get on with their lives. Yeah, I, I agree with, uh, with Heidi. And I think a good source, me uh, particularly, I have five or six, it's not like a, a multitude. Sources that I, that I have for 20 years. Um, and yeah, I'll be there with them trying to protect them. And I think in, in, in my case, um, I, would, I wouldn't uh, see them revealed. Okay, so it's an ongoing relationship. I think in coppers, in police, there's a story there anyway about witness protection. If police have got informants, particularly witnesses that they have, they have a regime of witness protection. I'm not suggesting that for a moment for the sources of journalists, but uh, particularly in heavy uh, criminal matters that there is some protection. So it's a, an issue for media organisations to say, well, how do we, how do we mitigate the uh, damage to this person um, uh, it's almost a duty of care type thing. Usually the, it's the journos who maintain the association with them through thick and thin over many, many years. Does that get to the, your question? Yes, I agree. Well, obviously... Um, uh, Is the mic there? I, I think we are, as investigative reporters, often encouraging people to break the law. We're encouraging people to break their employment contracts. We have to take that as a reality. And uh, while we are um, as careful as we can be, the power of governments, as we know, to uh, intercept communications and find out things these days uh, um, is, is awe-inspiring. I, I, I'm just wondering if in any of your investigations you've reached a point where you have said to the source, don't take this risk. Yeah, well, I, I have, because I, I feel, again, I think this is a mature thing. When you start off, you don't think about these things, but as you get, as you basically have experiences along the way, I've had some of my sources whose lives have actually been damaged by, this, by, by, by my work, um, mainly because the people that you're up against are often playing very dirty. I can't go into details on this, but there was one particular incident that will never leave me, and I realized at that point that you've actually got a real obligation if you have a good source on the line, not to ruin their lives and to try and educate them about the possibilities of protecting themselves at the beginning, um, walking them through the, you know, I mean, obviously you've got to balance because you want the information, but you've got to be very careful not to want it too much. And, and, and you've also got to be able to live with yourself afterwards. Did I warn the person what might be happening? I'm very much in favor these days of not encouraging your sources to go public because I think it's the only way truly that you're going to protect them. And that's very hard for a source because often a source like Quinton's pointing out, they, they actually want to be public. They want to get their credit and their recognition for doing what they're doing, which is often a very brave thing to do. But you know, I'm very proud of the fact that the, that the source of the Panama Papers has never been revealed. And if you go back through a whole history of stories that I've done since that, that one incident where I, I, I could see the damage it was doing to a person, I always encourage my sources, look, don't go public. That's a, major, that's a major ethical issue for journalists. I agree totally. Sometimes I've said to my sources, don't you make yourself unemployable. I can put you on television, but you'll be unemployable. You're 35 years old. You've got, uh, you've got family commitments. You've got loved ones. You'll make yourself unemployable. Let's work out how we can uh, make this anonymous, yep. uh, which is a big tactical factor. 
that we all should consider about protection. Anonymity can do a lot to protect sources. Does that help, Stephen? Okay, over, yeah. over here. Um, can you hear me? Yeah. Um, is this just, uh, you mentioned earlier or touched on earlier about mistakes you've made early in your career and Jared just talked about some, you know, experience as well and Heidi talked about it. I'm just wondering how much of this is sort of trial by error and how did you have mentors who sort of helped you um, as you became investigative journalists? Um, you know, what kind of, um, you know, guidance and um, senior journalists sort of showing you the way and sort of maybe helping you develop your careers did you have um, along the way, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I have a mentor, um, two actually, old school journalists in Brazil. One was my boss for 15 years and I, it's like, I feel like Galatea and he's the Pygmalion, you know, <laughs> he healed me and I, I owe him uh, a lot and uh, we got along so well, but uh, now we are not working together. But I think the, the experience of um, older journalists and experienced journalists, it's amazing. And I think it's a problem now in these new newsrooms because when you're with these massive layoffs, you know, are, people are re uh, replacing old journalists by new journalists who are, they are cheaper, they are less experienced. And this is some, there is a, a lack now in newsrooms, I think because this figure is almost a father figure for, for, for young journalists. For me, it, it, it was. It's so important. It's so, in, the, in the ethical um, uh, aspect, in the, um, in the, the, the reporting, the daily basis uh, doubts you have, and helping you to shape your, your mindset and career. Yeah, I absolutely agree. My big piece of advice I would always give to any young journalist is just find mentors and hang on to them and learn everything you possibly can. Um, and also they will then champion you and help you to kind of get opportunities within a newsroom or within, within the industry. Um, and also just keep learning from everyone. Like right now, um, I'm learning hugely from Mark Sheaves, who's the editor of investigations we have in New York, and also from Janine Gibson, who's our amazing editor-in-chief in the UK. But also I learn every day from the team that, that work for me, from the reporters on my team. Like I'm constantly learning amazing new techniques from them and ways of approaching sources and, and difficult problems. And um, so yeah, just be a sponge and like sponge it all up. Yeah, I, I think it's important to know that you don't know everything and you, you forget about that. Well, you know, when you, you know, you think, you know, I, mean, I thought I knew a lot until I went to America and started working with all these journalists around the world and I realized how little I actually knew. And, and that's very humbling at times, I can tell you, because you just realize these people are really smart. And you also, you know, you, you every um, language group basically has got little tricks and little lessons that they've learned along the way that you can learn from. I mean, my advice, simple advice is read everyone, you know, read every piece, go to everything that won the Walkley Awards this year, read the pieces, learn from them, go to the Pulitzer Prize website, go to some other country, go to the UK, um, whatever, find out whatever prizes are won over there and go and read the ones, read the best and learn from the best. All That's the what I've, I've learned from the Walkley, being a judge and being involved in it, that you could burst into tears at the, at the commitment and the resourcefulness and the courage of a lot of the journalists uh, in this country. It redeems us <laughs> at a time when the media is very, uh, is often despised. It redeems us and that, that's great. Yeah. Uh, but you know what's the downside of this when you realize you are the older in your newsroom and you are the mentor, so <laughs> it's impressive. <laughs> well, that's, that's, that's the never give up uh, philosophy. Uh, time for one more, yes. Sorry, you had the mic. <laughs> uh, just quickly, uh, Heidi, you just mentioned uh, there are some techniques you've learned about how to best approach sources. Uh, and we have covered quickly how to deal with a source who has approached you and is already kind of willing to talk and divulge information. Um, so how have you found uh, some effective ways of approaching someone kind of out of the blue and getting them to talk to you? Um, so what, what I would always say is, um, you know, always 
always try and get to someone in person if you possibly can. You know, it's so, so much harder to say no to someone's face when you can, you know, and you can see someone in front of you and they're a real living, breathing human being. So much harder to do that than to just ignore an email or hang up the phone. Um, so, yeah, I would certainly say um, do that. I think what I've learned from my team, who are, especially the, the couple of them who are a bit younger, um, is that they are just sort of constantly chatting with their sources all the time on like multiple social media channels and things like that you know they're constantly like whatsapping snapchatting you know talking on telegram talking on all kinds of different um through all kinds of different channels um and it's a much more kind of continuous fluid conversation than where i would traditionally meet up with my sources and like have a long drink with them and chat to them that way. They're just like constantly in touch and that's been really, really interesting to watch. Um, it makes the, the kind of relationship very organic and like constantly evolving. Um, but yeah, I, I still kind of actually believe personally, or for me at least, that just seeing people in person is so key. And you can do that by just putting yourself in situations where you're likely to meet people um, who are gonna be interesting as well as by you know, like directly trying to approach particular people. I'm a great believer in, in letting people know you're there mm. and, and basically doing, you know, I mean, one lesson I learned on uh, very early on when I was investigating the police in Victoria was writing that first story, mm. you know, finding a story. It didn't, it didn't have to be the big blockbuster that was going to win you a Walkley. It was a story about the theme that you wanted to investigate, no matter how small. I think the first one I wrote was about this small-time drug dealer who claimed he had been robbed by the police. And, you know, and getting that story into the paper was very important because it led to the next source, which then led to the next story, which led to another source, which led to another source, which eventually got me the kind of sources that I really needed to investigate that. So I'm a great believer in advertising yourself and people will find you, particularly if you work for a big media organization like BuzzFeed or, or you know, or the Sydney Morning Herald here or the Australian or whatever, you know, you've got a great audience and you need to learn early on that your audience, every one of them, so you get three million readers, that's three million potential sources you need to get to. And the best way to get to them is to show them that you're interested in the topic. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, I think I, I completely agree, and I think it's, there's nothing like eye to eye. Like, I try to have dinners and lunches with my sources at least once a month. And I live in Rio, but most of them are in Brasilia and in Sao Paulo, so I, I go there just to have lunch, and, a, and, a, and I'm always available. And we talk uh, a lot on WhatsApp and Telegram, too. The face to face. Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, that's a wrap. Uh, would you please thank our courageous journalist? You've been listening to Heidi Blake, Daniela Pinheiro, Gerard Ryle, and Quentin Dempster in a special edition of the Walkley Talks podcast Conversations from Storyology. If you like this stuff, you should really sign up to the Walkley Foundation newsletter at walkleys.com/slash subscribe. Please rate our podcast on iTunes and consider giving us a few dollars at walkleys.com slash donate to help us keep doing it. Walkley Talks is produced by me, Kate Golden, for the Walkley Foundation at the 2SER Studios in Sydney, Australia. Catch you next time.